Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to be speaking today with Dr. Rebecca Simon about her book titled The Pirate's Code, Laws and Life Aboard Ship, published by Reaction in 2023. Um, This book takes us through kind of all things pirate, many things pirate, Um, not so much the kind of myths, but doing some very helpful myth busting. What was it actually like to be at sea? How did piracy really fit into society at the time? Um, So Rebecca, thank you so much for being here to tell us the real history of piracy. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Before we do get into all things pirate, though, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Yes, uh, my name is Dr. Rebecca Simon, and I'm a part-time professor. I'm an adjunct professor at Santa Monica College teaching history. And I wrote this book because I was actually approached by the commissioning editor at Reaction Books back in 2019. He saw I'd written a blog entry for the King's College London History Department, uh, which is where I did my PhD in 20, and finished in 2017. And I had written a bit about what was called the Pirate's Code in the film Pirates of the Caribbean. And he found it and he really liked it. And he asked if I would be interested in writing a book about the lives of pirates. And I immediately saw the vision of this book in my mind about how I'd organize each chapter by each one of the codes. And so um, I wrote the proposal. It had to be very, very detailed. Um, I spent a lot of time writing the proposal. It was accepted. And I spent the next several years working on it. And now you're here to tell us all about it, um, which exactly. is, for me, obviously the most exciting part of that entire process, given that I didn't have to do the writing of the proposal or anything <laughs> like that. Um, all right. So we've got the book. Um, we have some idea of kind of how much work went into it. So let's dive into what it actually talks about. Um, first off, kind of the important usual historical context question what is the sort of time period we're looking at if we if we talk about the golden age of piracy when is that and what are the sort of three rounds that make this up the golden age of piracy was a period of lots of organized piracy that was happening during a time of a lot of political struggle between the major european powers in the americas so it goes from about between 1650 or 1670 up until about 1730 depending on which historian you ask it's going to be different but i generally go by 1650 to 1730 and It's been said that there are about three distinct rounds of this golden age of piracy. And the first one are the buccaneers in the Caribbean. And a lot of these were more land-based pirates. They tended to go on land and raid quite a bit. And they had a lot of their holdouts on various Caribbean islands, um, going into Jamaica, onto Port Royal. And they were mostly attacking Spanish ships because Spanish ships tended to go after a lot of the buccaneering ships and the Spaniards had destroyed one of the buccaneers' havens in the Caribbean. And so that was usually their aim, going after them. And then um, the buccaneers also became very, very prominent during a time that the Navigation Acts were passed in about 1651. And these were acts passed from Britain, telling all of its colonists that they could not trade with anyone outside of the British Empire or one of the British colonies or Britain itself. And what this did is it blocked colonies from trading with all kinds of foreign nations. And this was a huge problem. And so this is where pirates would step in and they would rob lots of ships and sell them to colonists. 
And then the, sorry, then the period of the buccaneering ends around 1692 when you have a massive earthquake that destroys Port Royal, Jamaica, which had been a huge haven for a lot of pirates. And they scatter. And then um, we're going to have in the 1690s a second round of the Golden Age of Piracy. I don't know if I would even really call it a round. I think it's just kind of another location where piracy is happening. And But we're looking at it because they are British pirates operating in the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea. So we're now going across the globe looking at the Indian Ocean. And this is because Britain has set up massive trading links going into India with the rise of the East India Company and the relationships with the Indian moguls, the merchant elite class there. And this is when we have British pirates such as Henry Avery and Captain Kidd going and terrorizing excuse me, going and terrorizing ships over there. And then piracy goes on pause about 1701, when the outbreak of the War of Spanish Succession happens. And Britain is fighting against Spain along, you know, all of Europe is divided up in this war, and a lot of it will take place at sea. And Britain needs skilled fighters who can also sail. And so pirates who volunteer to fight in the War of Spanish Succession for Britain get pardoned of their crimes and they become privateers, which means they're basically being paid to rob specific enemy ships. So most pirates decide to do this. And then when the war ends in 1713, these uh, privateers are out of work. And so they turn to piracy. And this begins the third round. And this is the round that people are generally familiar with. This is where you're going to find the infamous pirates like Blackbeard, who was actually called Edward Teach, Jack Rackham, Anne Bonney, Mary Reed, Benjamin Hornigold, all of your greatest hits of pirates. They're all veterans, or they worked with veterans of the Spanish... Uh, sorry, they're all veterans, or they worked with veterans from the War of Spanish Succession. Interesting that they're all, uh, all the famous ones are in that third one, um, but helpful to kind of have the broader picture. Um We've already heard a few words in that answer uh, that give us kind of some idea of the complexity of what we're talking about, right? Buccaneer, pri uh, pirate, and um, privateer, you know, think there's all sorts of things going around of who is authorizing what and for what reason. So can you take us through what legal definitions of pirates existed and to what extent they change over the time period or between the different countries making the rules? Sure. But um, one more thing I want to say about the third round of the golden age of piracy that just came to me is that there are historians, um, myself included, actually, who argue that the third round of the golden age of piracy, the, that's like the only time in history you get, quote unquote, real pirates, because these are people who are operating entirely out of the law specifically for themselves. For the most part, during other time periods, a lot of the buccaneers have been privateers working for governments or they were working for royalty, going back into the ancient world and the medieval world. But this is the time where they're all working for themselves. And so that leads us into this question you just asked, what makes a pirate? What is the legal definition of a pirate? The legal definition of the pirate, which goes back to Henry VIII, are people who rob and murder on any body of water, a lake, river, a sea, an ocean, any piece of water. And that's the legal definition. It's pretty simple, but it's going to become kind of convoluted over the years. So as piracy goes on the rise, the High Court of Admiralty around the turn of the 18th century becomes charged to specifically go after pirates. The High Court of Admiralty is the legal body in charge of all things maritime. 
And so they're the ones who are going to be sending people out to hunt pirates. They're going to be the ones who are going to try pirates. And over time, it came to be that, yes, they kept this definition of pirates who would rob and murder at sea. But sometimes these pirates get captured having only robbed a ship and accused of piracy. Not all pirates were actually that violent. In fact, many actually tried to avoid killing as much as possible. You want to get in and get out as fast as you can. And so the idea is if they're robbing a British ship and taking goods, then that means they are damaging their country. They're damaging their king. Therefore, they are basically trying to end their kingdom. Thus, they are murdering Britain. So it became very, very, very convoluted in this sense. And then sometimes what they also counted as piracy was if if pirates robbed a ship and then sorry, if pirates robbed a ship and then handed out goods to those who attacked the ship in forms of payment and you accepted that payment, that automatically made you a pirate because you became complicit in the activity. So it became really different, um, especially going into the 18th century as Britain was doing everything it could to absolutely eradicate pirates from the Atlantic world. Hmm. Very complicated, um, just as a starting point, right, of the different rounds, which ones count, who's making these different definitions. Um, But it's not all sort of lines on a map and laws. There's also, as you said, kind of the practical, what was it really like element. So I wanted to ask about Port Royal, um, as you've mentioned it already, that it's burning down had a huge impact on piracy kind of throughout the region. So why was Port Royal, Jamaica, the largest pirate hub and so important in the 17th century? So what's really interesting about why Jamaica became such a pirate hub is partly because Jamaica was being fought over so much by Britain and Spain. It's a small plantation island. It's actually quite interesting why they were going after Jamaica so much because it's actually a very small island and it's kind of crowded around lots of other smaller islands. But It was a great resource for a lot of plantation land. Sugar grew very well there, which is like the number one commodity. So Britain and Spain were constantly fighting over it. And this is going to uh, lead to an outbreak of war between Britain and Spain during the 17th century. With all of this political instability over this region, it's actually going to become a great place for pirates to hide out. Because when there's so many political problems and there's war happening, all the time and resources are being spent on the war. They don't really have, the British authorities and the Spanish authorities don't have as much time to spend their resources to go after pirates, who honestly they consider to be petty annoyances for the most part. So pirates would go to Jamaica. There were a lot of people who were sent to Jamaica for labor purposes. Many of them had been criminals in Britain or other parts of Europe that had been sent over to do hard labor as their punishment. There were lots of prostitutes there. It actually was not uncommon for European powers to bring prostitutes into the plantation colonies because of a woman shortage. So you have loads of prostitutes. As a result, you've got loads of taverns. Uh, This was very common. A lot of people would come to places like Jamaica or other places in the Caribbean and set up taverns and public houses because you have sailors coming in and out constantly. And where do they spend their money? They spend it on drinking, socializing. They'll spend it on women. So you have tons of taverns to the point where Britain was actually trying to pass a whole bunch of like anti-drinking laws that didn't work. And so as a result, this also becomes a great place for pirates to go. They can mingle with the crowd. They also go in pubs. They try to find new recruits. So it just becomes a really great location because tons of trading lanes are going in and out of Jamaica. So it's really easy to rob a lot of merchant ships going in and out of the area. 
And it does have good proximity to other plantation islands, such as maybe Barbados or the Leeward Islands going up towards Hispaniola. And from there, you can go into the Americas. So it was actually a really great location for pirates to hang out. Lots of activity. It sounds like it. That answer gives us some idea of who is running around here. Um, It's obviously not just pirates, um, but there's other people too. But turning towards the pirates, who becomes a pirate? How does someone become a pirate? Who are these people? So uh, pirates come from all walks of life. Many of them are former privateers. A privateer, like I said earlier, is someone who is legally sanctioned by government to rob specific enemy ships. They generally get to keep about 80% of the loot they steal. That's their payment. A lot of privateers like this work. It's adventurous for the most part. They're pretty much working for themselves. They're freelancers, you can say, and they're making good money. When the contract runs out, a lot of them just kind of continue on and that will, and they just start attacking indiscriminately. This happens a lot after the War of Spanish Succession. There are people who will actively join a pirate crew for various reasons. It could be that maybe socially they didn't have much of another choice. Perhaps they were an escaped enslaved person. They could be African, maybe who couldn't get work anywhere people who were criminals or had a criminal record and could not find work. There were many people who were part of the merchant, the mercantile system or in the Royal Navy, and they tended to have a lot harsher rules, a lot harsher punishments, wages could get withheld. Pirate ships were actually quite egalitarian. Uh, pirates generally had a lot of equal pay by passing out goods, and they actually were healthier in a lot of ways because they would rob ships and they get fresh supplies because of that. So in some ways, you could argue that life was a little bit better on pirate ships. And then, of course, you have a lot of people who were forced into piracy, or so they would claim. They were hostages. They were forced to swear by the articles, which is what we call the code. And they were also forced to accept their portion of the loot, which everyone had to do. And that legally would also make them a pirate. And a lot of those people in trials and the court records would say, oh, I had no choice, blah, blah, blah. But it didn't matter. They were participants now. And so they became a pirate. Hmm. Interesting to think about kind of you get loot and you don't want it, right? That goes against, I think, a lot of the stereotypes and again, highlights the importance of having the proper history that you're telling us. Um, In a similar vein, I would love to ask you to sort of dispel a confusion, I suppose, that I certainly had coming into the book, um, where we know from popular culture that one of the things that sort of set pirates apart from polite society during this time period, either in Britain or the American colonies, was um, kind of what pirates looked like, how they behaved. That comes up still to this day in popular culture, and yet we don't usually understand kind of why those things were considered so deviant. So can you talk us through kind of what polite behavior was at the time, what a good appearance was, so that we can understand how pirates seem to not meet those standards? Yes. So during the 18th century, we see a rise in what we call polite society. And this is kind of the idea of how to be a proper gentleman. A lot of people from various social classes always wanted to try to elevate themselves. And if they were able to do this visually, um, then it could maybe help their standing. So in order to be considered a polite gentleman, the way you look is you have your hair tied back or you wear a wig. 
in order to hide it. You don't want your long natural hair blowing everywhere. So tie it back or wear a wig. You're going to have a clean shaven face. Facial hair was considered to be kind of uncouth. It was dirty. So you want to have, you want to look nice and clean shaven. You don't drink much. You don't swear. You dress very nicely, very neatly at all times, no matter what you're doing. And so this is kind of what people really expected. Um, Pirates... Pirates, on the other hand, what they so what some of them would do is they would deliberately kind of go against this. You know, pirates were heavy drinkers. But here's what's actually really interesting is that pirates and your standard sailors weren't really that different. And this is because many of them had been regular sailors. They dressed the way all sailors did, you know, very practical clothing. Some pirate captains uh, would actually dress really fancy because of the goods they were able to seal, different textiles. Uh, Jack Rackham was known for wearing lots of calico, hence why he was known as Calico Jack Rackham, lots of silk, etc. But probably the most famous pirate to really go against polite society was Edward Teach, uh, commonly known as Blackbeard. And he was known as Blackbeard because he had a very long, bushy black beard. He had very long black hair that he would wear loose, so it would be flying in the wind. It was said that his beard was such a large beard that it covered most of his face. And he would yell, he would swear. And what he'd do is he put some sort of like candles or fuses into his hair and his beard and light them in battle. So smoke would come off of him and it made him look like he came out of hell in battle. And this was an intimidation tactic in order to get the other uh, ship to surrender as fast as possible. Blackbeard actually forbade his crew from killing people in battle. And Blackbeard himself did not kill anyone until his final battle. But this is kind of how pirates would really go against society. And this was a way to sort of keep them apart. Also, sailors in general weren't considered part of polite society. There were lots of criticisms about their behaviors because of drinking and whoring and the the fact they didn't go to church. They didn't really do Bible study, pirates included. So there's actually lots of crossover similarities. Mm, No, that's that's important, again, to do some of this myth busting. Going to the title of your book, um, The Pirate's Code, how standardized were the real life codes that pirates lived by? So the pirate codes um, are also known as the articles back then. There was a little bit of a question whether or not they were actually real. The general history of the pirates um, claims that there were four different codes from pirates. Um, There were two codes actually published in the Boston Newsletter. So we do know that pirates did have a set of rules to follow. And the codes were basically ways of keeping a ship running smoothly. So they're pretty standard. It's like, it's not like the film Pirates of the Caribbean where, you know, keep to the code, a man falls behind, he is left behind, et cetera, et cetera. No, that, those aren't the codes. The codes are things like here's how we dis- equally distribute goods amongst the crew. Here is how here is payment um, in case you get injured and you lose a limb. Here is how we'll this is how you must keep your weapons clean and how you have to take care of them. You know, no, sometimes no drinking or gambling uh, in order to keep control. Or if you do, it has to be after hours on the deck. It could be things like how we distribute food and drink, things like rest days, what games are permitted. So it was all about running a ship very, very smoothly because the tighter the ship, the more likely you're going to have of survival because being a pirate, of course, it's very, very risky and you want everything to run as smoothly as possible to make it as successful as possible. 
Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned the division of goods now um, in that answer and um, a few minutes before that. Could you tell us more about how pirates distributed goods and what was so, in some ways, radical about it? Yeah, so pirates generally, they weren't paid in cash. The only pirate who paid his crew in cash was the pirate Steed Bonnet, but everyone else was paid literally in the goods they would steal. And it would get divvied up based on the worth. And it was all done through equal shares, sort of based on your rank. So the captain would get the largest share. And then th- those who are the high commanding officers, like the quartermaster, the lieutenant, etc., they would get um, a little bit less pay than the captain, but it would be equal amongst all of them. Then you have the skilled workers, like you know, it would be like the carpenter, it would be the cook, it could be a surgeon if they're lucky to have one, or a navigator or a bursar. Um, it could be a bosun, a gunner, something like that, someone in charge of the cannons. And they would get paid less than the officers, but they all got equal pay all across the board. And then you have the uh, deck workers, you have the cabin boys, those who do like the harder labor on the pirate ship. And they'll get paid the least, but they're all getting paid equal. So it's not like you're in your workplace and you find out, oh, this person who has the same amount of experience as me is getting paid 10 grand more a year for some reason. Or this person started after I did and they're making more than me. Um, So there was none of that. Everyone, no matter what, you got paid the same, depending on your rank. Mm, yeah, so it was like a tier system. So yes, each tier yes. was different, but within the tier, it was all equal. That's right. And how different was that from, for example, pay on a Navy ship? Oh, it was really different because um, officers were paid a lot. And then the lower you went, you would get paid a lot less. I'm talking really, really low, especially if you were pressed into the Royal Navy, if you were forced into it, you got paid the least. And again, payment could vary. If you were punished, you'd have your pay withheld or maybe you did some extra favors, you might get like an extra wages at this particular point. And so it wasn't always fair. Now, this didn't happen on all Royal Naval ships. In fact, I think for the most part, things were pretty fair for the Royal Navy, but there were enough discrepancies to be able to cause a lot of dissatisfaction on these ships and similar in merchant ships as well. Merchant ships sometimes would promise a certain amount of pay and then they might not get it because perhaps they didn't sell as many goods as they were hoping, or they were told we're going to be sailing to this location. And then, you know, your tenure is done. But then it turns out, oh, we're making a lot of extra stops at these locations. Um, And no, you won't get paid until the end of your journey. So it it was a little more unpredictable in other ships, whereas pirates ships, it was it was a lot more standardized. And this is because you never knew when you're going to get captured, you never knew when you're going to get killed. And we're always going to be trying to go to land where we could blend in and then spend our money, which was the goal. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, now, I know you've mentioned that most of this was um, goods. But we do, of course, with pirates have the myth of um, kind of everything being about shining piles of gold. And when we think about payment um, and equality, it's an easy thing to kind of skip to, right? Because it's very easy to say kind of you each get five coins, right? You can measure the equality there. But to what extent did pirates actually seek treasure? Not that that it wasn't really a goal of theirs. Pirates liked going after Spanish ships because Spanish ships were the ones that would carry the most gold coin on them. But most pirates were not powerful enough to go after Spanish ships. Um, Sometimes pirates might like to go after slave ships um, after a slave ship would have unloaded 
um, the enslaved people and sold them all because they're going to have loads of cash on the ship. But again, most pirates did not have the power to do this. So the reality is pirates were looking for really good things that they could sell for, and that was their priority. So about 50% of the items that pirates stole were actually to replenish their own supplies. So it could be things like tackle, canvas for repairs. It could be food, medicine, all kinds of stuff. This is why pirates were actually a little bit more healthy than other sailors because they replenished a lot more often because of this. The other half of the goods would be things like sugar. It would be different types of textiles, spices, different types of alcohol, either rum or it could be fancy wine, such as Madeira wine. And these were items that they could sell at a high price. And what they also like to do is be able to sell these to governors or high-ranking officials to cut deals. So that way, maybe they might have some protection. And this was really common in the 17th century, not so much in the 18th century when Britain really cracked down on piracy. But there were always a place a pirate could go to try to make deals with some of like the local tavern keepers or maybe some local governor. Um, so this is why it was also really important to be able to have these goods so you can sell. The vast majority of pirates, they would often, if they didn't have families, some would send money home if they did have families. But for the most part, pirates would go on land and they'd spend their money. And then when they ran out, they'd go back pirating again. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense in that kind of transactional nature that you're describing. Um, Turning to a different part of the book, could you please briefly introduce us to the range of pirate flags and their specific meanings? So we see a few different ranges of pirate of pirate flags, and we really start seeing the patterns in the 17th century. So there were two types. You have the red flag and the black flag. The black flag was what pirates would fly if they intended to show mercy. They will give quarter, is what it would say. You know, surrender to us and we'll spare you. The red flag symbolized they would give no quarter. There would be no mercy. They will fight to the death if they had to. So if you're going to come across pirates, better to come across a black flag if you could. Sometimes these flags would have little images of skull and crossbones. There's a misconception that it's very much a unique thing to pirates. Uh, It's not. The skull and crossbones simply symbolize death going back thousands of years. It was simply used in logbooks to signify a crew member who died. And it was used facetiously by pirates to kind of mean death. The red flag goes out of fashion around the turn of the 18th century. And this is because a lot of major pirate captains who were veterans of the Spanish-American War, for instance, began designing their own flags. Bartholomew Roberts, for example, the image on his flag was actually a self-portrait of himself, kind of holding a scythe or a trident. I mean, he was holding a trident in that image. Jack Rackham designed his own flag, the really famous one of skull and cross cutlasses. And at this point, the red flag had gone out of fashion and they were all sticking with black flags. And this is pretty uniform. Pirates could recognize each other. It's a small world. Many of them, if they did not know each other, they probably knew of each other. And this way, everybody kind of knew who pirates were. So this is kind of when it changes um, into just the black decorated flag that we know of. This happens in the 18th century. Interesting to think that that wasn't kind of the only flag or even necessarily the one people most dreaded, um, given what we think of now. Another aspect of your book um, looks at women and, again, the myth that kind of women uh, were not allowed on pirate ships or not allowed on ships generally. 
Can you take us through that? Why were women actually generally banned from pirate ships, but were sometimes still there? (laughs) Yeah, so there's kind of this misconception that women were banned on ships for being unlucky or cursing a voyage or something like that. And there is some maritime lore going back hundreds, if not thousands of years of female maritime creatures, um, sirens and mermaids who would lure sailors into the sea and drown them. This is like the number one fear of sailors is drowning. Or, um, and so a lot of these sort of female driven creatures would signify death to the sailors. It was really more for seduction. You know, how else are you going to lure a sailor into the water? You try to seduce him. But what's also interesting though, is we have to remember is that ships were given female pronouns. And so that's, so that means the pirates really treated the ship well, almost as if it's like the figure that's taking care of them, giving it a maternalness to it. But the reality is uh, ships, especially pirate ships, they would ban women from joining because they felt women would be a cause of distraction or cause problems amongst the men, maybe some competition, some jealousy, or that there was this belief that women could not physically or mentally or emotionally handle the rigors of life at sea. You know, this is too hard work for them. They can't handle it. They're too emotional. You know, this was the belief of women in the 17th and 18th centuries that they should be at home, that they didn't have the abilities that men had. And so there were, some pirate ships that would allow women, that was extremely rare, um, on ships in general. Um, on those ships, it might be like their wives, but that was really rare. rare. But on other ships, on non-pirate ships, it actually wasn't too uncommon to have women working on ships in some ways. Captains and lieutenants would bring their wives sometimes, but sometimes women could be employed and they would usually do things like work in the kitchens or help do repairs like sewing up canvas or um, being nursemaids, basically. So they actually there were women who would find roles on ships, but it was a lot rarer on pirate ships because of the constant fighting and the death that they would face. Blackbeard had a code in his articles specifically banning women and what's interesting, boys. And the idea could be, you know, boys can't handle the work, women can't handle the work. It could also be for sexual reasons as well, not to cause any sort of jealousy or problems. Interesting. Um, no, very good to kind of get the nuance in that. Um, staying on this topic for a moment, you include in the book a discussion about kind of the practical side of being a woman on a ship for those where they were allowed. Um, can you perhaps talk about why maybe some of our misperceptions about oh, it wouldn't be possible to disguise your gender on a ship or it wouldn't be possible to be a woman on a ship might be perhaps incorrect? Yeah, it it would, of course, be very complicated to keep yourself disguised. But um, physically, in terms of how you looked, a woman could probably do it pretty easily. For the most part, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries, women, of course, were much smaller stature, so they could often pass off for cabin boys or maybe, you know, adolescents. Um, women don't grow facial hair. So as an adolescent or an older boy, that makes total sense why they don't have facial hair. The baggy clothing could hide their curves. A lot of women who might join a pirate ship were probably working class, which meant they probably worked as maids. And actually women who worked as maids were very physically strong and actually quite muscular in a lot of ways. You're heaving heavy buckets of water and wood. You're working all day. You're on your feet constantly. So women who are working class were would, were actually very suited um, physically for this life. So they are probably already quite wiry. They probably haven't developed as well as, say, uh, 
upper class women who don't do hard labor and eat a lot more food. So you know, there isn't very much you have to do in terms of maybe binding your breasts. You wear baggy clothing. Um, you wear black pants. Now, in terms of other practicalities, such as going to the bathroom, that of course is going to be hard to disguise as a woman. You know, men stand up. They'll pee over the deck. So what some women could do is they, what they might do is they would fashion a funnel that they would put into their trousers and kind of use that. So that way um, they could also disguise themselves in terms of menstruation. It's very likely menstruation would stop because of the really hard labor and because they might not be getting the quality of food that they were used to on land. Um, if they if menstruation did not stop well, wearing black trousers could help disguise things and you could use different types of strips of cloth or cotton and then throw it overboard when no one's looking. The reality is pirate ships were also extremely busy. They were crowded. So people wouldn't necessarily, and if you're working as a cabin boy, people won't be paying very much attention to you for the most part. No, those are all really um, kind of add them all up together. And you're like, oh yeah, okay. That would be quite possible um, if someone wanted to do it. So useful to be aware of. Um, You just mentioned that pirate ships are very busy. Um, there's lots going on. But what did pirates do when they weren't either busy fighting fighting or maintaining their ships, which is obviously, I think, the other key part of their job? It's a huge part of their job. And this was also something that happened on regular sailing ships as well. And this would be a time of idleness and it could lead to boredom. And there were a lot of criticisms against sailors in general saying that the reason why they would drink and they would go whoring so much was because of all this idleness. But in reality, you know, pirates, you have to keep morale up especially because it is such a dangerous environment. And so they would they would do what was probably going on on most ships. You would play music. There was pretty much, there was always at least one person who could play an instrument of some sort, um, maybe like the violin or something like that. So there would be some musicians playing music. At the very least, say, um, sailors and pirates would sing sea shanties to pass the time. They're sung in rounds, very simple tunes, and they're a lot of fun to listen to. Uh, on TikTok a couple years ago, there was a huge popularity of singing lots of sea shanties. So they're still popular to this day. And so they do lots of singing. They might play cards as long as they weren't gambling. Gambling, for the most part, was banned on ships because that could cause a whole slew of problems. So, But they might play games as long as gambling wasn't involved. Cards, backgammon. They might tell stories, mythology, um, catch up on sleep. And then sometimes they would drink a bit. But there were some pirate captains who allowed drinking for morale purposes, such as Bartholomew Roberts. But then there were other pirates captains like... Edward Lowe, who banned drinking because they felt it could cause a lot of problems on the ship. So there were there were lots of things you could do to pass the time. Most pirate ships were allowed, like kind of if they weren't fighting, like a day of rest, meaning like a day where you could you don't ha- you didn't you could work shorter hours, you can have more time for entertainment. So and this was common on ships across the board. An interesting way in which pirate life and non-pirate life um, were much more common than we might think. Um, And of course, as you said, sea shanties are very familiar today. Probably, I would guess, the most uh, common, the, the thing that best links people today and the lives of pirates, would you say? 
Oh, easily. Um, sea shanties uh, like, to this day are, they're fun. They're very jaunty. They're easy to remember because the tunes are so simple. The lyrics repeat themselves a lot. And this was done on purpose. That way you could sing the song and anyone could know it. Mm-hmm. And today, you know, they became really popular over social media. People still like to sing them. Sea shanties were used a lot in the video game Assassin's Creed Black Flag. And I know the soundtrack for that was quite popular because of a lot of those sea shanties. And it is kind of a way for us to sort of understand what life at sea was like. You know, music is, I think it's like the language that links humanity because people find ancient graves of hunter gatherers and crudely carven flutes or other items that could be used as musical instruments. So we've been musical ever since the beginning of humanity. So it makes sense that we're still using music to understand pirates and also kind of link our understanding together. Mm, No, very much so. Um, Before I ask you what you might be working on next, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the pirates in this book? I think kind of a big thing about pirates is just how sometimes people ask, you know, what's something you should know? And sometimes I like to kind of say is that pirates weren't as swashbuckling as we think. They were sailors like anybody else. And their goal was to make money and their goal was to survive. But the average life expectancy of a pirate was about two years once they became a pirate. They would usually either be captured, put on trial and hanged, or they would be killed at sea or die of maybe an infection or an illness. So it was a very, you know, as I say, quick but merry life on the pirate ship, some might say. And also the whole notion of buried treasure. I always have to dispel that pirates did not bury treasure. They, for the most part, did not have cash. And they would sell their goods and make, um, you know, make money by selling their goods and then use it to go drinking. And until they ran out of money, then they go back to pirating. It was a quick way to make money. If they were tired, they could make enough to live comfortably after just one voyage. So, but yeah, pirates did not bury treasure. They wouldn't have had the time. Or the interest. There's no incentive, right? right? You want the money and you want to go spend it. Exactly. There's no reason to put it away and try to get get it later because they Mm -hmm. knew that there was no reality. And also the islands and the shipping lanes, they're really populated for the most Mm. part. We have this idea that there's tons of these desert islands. And of course there were some, but generally they were all populated. Yeah. I think it's a good, um, anytime that there's kind of theories of, Oh, look at the open expanse of ocean and just pull up a map of the Caribbean and go, hang on a second. Exactly. (laughs) Where? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't work quite so well. Um, Well, thank you so much for taking us through the realities of pirates' life and, of course, their codes. Before I let you go, though, is there anything you might be working on now or next, even if it's not a book or about pirates, that you can preview for us? Right now, I'm editing a chapter for um, Routledge uh, is publishing a book called The History of Crime in Early America or History of Crime in America. And they've asked me to write a chapter about piracy in the Atlantic Republican world. And so uh, I've just received comments back. So I'm going to be spending the next month kind of editing those. I've got lots of sources kind of looking up the relationship between uh, pirates and the big question whether or not they might have been complicit in the slave trade. This is a question a lot of historians are asking frequently, but we've never really been able to come with up with something definitive. So I've been looking at some sources for that. Um, I know reaction is interested in me pitching something else, but I have to find something to be able to pitch. So right now my focus is this book chapter. 
Brilliant. Well, best of luck with it. And uh, thank you for giving us that preview. While you are revising the chapter, uh, listeners can read the book we've been talking about titled The Pirate's Code, Laws and Life Aboard Ship, published by Reaction in 2023. Rebecca, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.